I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and here with me in the studio, live, <laughs> recording live, is my uh, guest and co-host for the week. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Matt Bernica. I've been sleeping on Dean's couch. That's right. And how's that going, Matt? It's I great. Really check in now. Pretty good. It's a pull-out couch. It's very comfortable. Um, Dean's cat is around, and that's fun, too. So yeah. it's good. These creaky chairs. <laughs> Can't stop them. In the, in the studio. It's great. <laughs> That's right, folks. Coming live to you. Well, kind of from Canada, the Great White North. That's what we call it up here. That's what the Canadians have been saying all week long. They've been referring to their home as the Great White North. And here we are. Um, cool. Well, that's it. That's all the cold, cold open you get, I think. And we can kind of The Great on. White Cold North open. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it's been good. We went to, what did we do? We went to the Art Gallery of Ontario yesterday. Yep, we went to the Shoe Museum. Today, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> it was, it was really fun. Surprisingly good, actually. A great exhibit about colonialism and shoes. Not what I expected going in, but um, it's what I wanted, and I got it, so that's great. Yeah, although the bottom of the museum is also a great illustration of a failure, <laughs> maybe, to think about colonialism and shoes. So it's great also because you can... Uh, you can experience the contradictions live. <laughs> That's right. They're all right there in the museum <laughs> itself. And as you work up, you ascend uh, towards the heavens and become enlightened at the end. <laughs> exactly. Literally, you go through the enlightenment. Cool. There's a lot of weird ener energy when you're in the same room podcasting. Yeah, I gotta say, I like it better when we're not here doing yeah. it. Yeah, it's weird to look at you at the same time. It's true. All right. Well, um, apart from all of that, yesterday, Dean and I also went to a solidarity protest downtown Toronto to show some solidarity with the land defenders in the Wet'suwet'en territory, which is a pretty neat thing. As a person from the U.S., this is something I'm woefully stupid about. Um, there's a lot going on in this situation for sure, and I'm not going to try to say it all right here on this podcast, but we went, and that was cool. Um, the gist of the situation, I guess, is that Coastal Gas Link, which is a gas company, is trying to run a pipeline through their territory without the consent of the indigenous people that are there, which is, uh, I gotta say, a bad move. Speaking of <laughs> colonialism, I don't, if, if it was me, if I was the CEO of Coastal Gas, wouldn't do that. Bad idea. Yeah, just don't. It's so easy. Um, yeah, uh, Dean, do you want to talk about it more, being a person from the Great White North? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a messed up situation. That's the short of it for sure. That's a gas company trying to run a pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory. Um, there's a lot going on, uh, actually. So Development and Peace, which I work for, signed a solidarity statement that you can read along with other ecumenical people that lays out some of the background. 
Um, so I don't know. We could put that in the show notes, I guess. But yeah. the the short of it is, uh, the Watsudan people. There was um, you know, they have a bunch of land that even the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized as their land. And nevertheless, Coastal GasLink wants to run a pipeline through it without um, consenting, especially the hereditary chiefs of uh, the Wet'suwet'en people. And they have been resisting this uh, particular project for a long time, for several years, especially like in the last, I don't know, five years. You know, they've been resisting development for that kind of development for a long time. But especially in the last maybe five years, there have just been a lot of uh, boiling over tensions with like the RCMP invading them several times. So anyway, this past week, uh, the Wet'suwet'en people, like the land defenders, also uh, all the people that are there, some of them are settlers, you know, whatever, all the people doing land defense. Um, the people resisting that pipeline evicted Coastal GasLink formally, and they gave the workers several hours to leave, and then they blockaded a, a major road that was used by the company. And as you could guess, Canada deployed federal police, the RCMP, arresting and assaulting those land defenders, um, and they put an end to the blockade. So the action in Toronto was in response to all that. Um, and it was great. It was powerful. Uh, it started outside the bank RBC, which is invested in the pipeline. And then it ended in a building in Toronto that has Coastal GasLink offices in it. And, you know, there's lots to say about that. You should look it up. It's a situation that you should know about for sure. Um, but uh, it really got our wheels turning about things like Christianity. What, you know, what does an event like this say about being a Christian person? thinking about colonization, climate change, eco-socialism, the COP26 conference, you know, all the stuff that you talk about, I guess, after after you go to a demonstration. Uh, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about all those things, I guess. All the stuff we talked about in the subway ride home. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's all, like, interconnected. It's hard to see any of these problems as something very separate. So I think it makes sense that we're just, we're just going about it. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in this episode, we're going to take this opportunity to go some more about it. Um, we're going to make some connections about what happened in COP26 and something that the decolonial theorist Walter Manolo called the Christian afterworld, uh, which is, an, I don't know, just like an intellectual framework for maybe thinking through the problems that Christians have caused in the world through uh, both ideology and like their institutional power and, and so on. It's a good term. It is a good term. Um, yeah, for sure. It's definitely something people are kind of always dealing with and you don't know about it. Um, basically, I mean, we live in a global order that has emerged historically out of Christian people in countries dominating the world. Um, that's, I guess, part of it. Um, and then that should make Christians especially uncomfortable <laughs> since the global order is presently like ecocidal, right? Um, it's, you know, undeniable to say that Christianity has been a really important building block for both capitalism and for colonialism. I, you can't, you can't say that it's not, um, because if you did, you'd be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, yeah, I mean, uh, but yeah, there are all these tensions within Christianity to say like, well, the world could be a better place or that, uh, that Christians should be really, um, you know, on the side of the poor or the oppressed or people who are really, I think, you know, in harm's way because of that ecocide. So, you know, on the one hand, Christians have done a lot of evil in the world, and they continue to do a lot of evil in the world. And on the other hand, what if you want to be a Christian and you don't want to do that evil stuff or, or think differently about it? So it's really important that we maybe work through some of that stuff together. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, I guess the way this links up, especially to that action yesterday, is it's kind of like, what does it mean to be a Christian person in a protest that is symptomatic of... Uh, a project of Christian colonialism, right? That's what Canada was, a project of Christians colonizing a, uh, a place. 
and subjugating indigenous peoples or trying to kill them or destroy their culture and so on. And this event of Coastal GasLink is like tied to that history, right? So the Coastal GasLink pipeline is not being done in the name of Jesus Christ necessarily. Maybe for some people it is probably. <laughs> like Those people need to stop. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's like some weird Christian right-wing people who do think that. But, you know, the official story is not that, right? The official story is all kinds of other stuff. But underneath all of that, it's kind of an iceberg, right? If you, if you look below, there are lots of Christian ways of thinking that have led to a situation in which we would see a confrontation like that. So if you're a Christian trying to protest that or be upset about that or be in solidarity with the people who are being victimized or, or you know, being, uh, I don't know, the recipients of violence as a result of that, then it's kind of how do you turn your own faith against the, the dominating um, realities of your faith or caused by your faith. And we can connect that, too, to what's going on at COP26, I think. Um, this might sound like a lot, but I promise it's very important to think about it together, right? Like... Uh, Matt mentioned the Christian afterworld. When we think about something like the United Nations or COP26, um, these are institutions that emerge uh, as a result of historical Christian domination, right? Who are the most powerful countries in the UN? They're mostly historically Christian countries. Who are the countries that are looked at super suspiciously at things like COP26? They are historically non-Christian, non-Western countries, right? China, India, maybe Brazil, right? The, Brazil's, you know, got its own Christian history, but not in the same way, right? Not a right. European kind of uh, uh, situation. So all that to say, um, that really affects these kinds of summits, right? That there's this kind of subterranean Christian logic underneath it. So what we really want to do is maybe lay out some of those troubling connections between Christianity, colonization, and so on. And to say, as always, that if Christians want to find a way out of all that stuff, we're going to have to figure out how we contributed to that world and then be willing to look at both Christian and non-Christian traditions of liberation to try to uh, find a way out of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's not like Christians haven't tried. Yeah, um, of course. They have, but they're bad at it. <laughs> I mean, there are Christians. Uh, well, Christians were some of the organizers of the rally we, we went to. We should say that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah good point. Uh, Christian peacemaker teams in particular, which are, an, it's an amazing organization if you don't know about them look them up for sure. Uh, in Canada, they do a lot of work around Indigenous Solidarity. It's a nonviolent peacemaking group. And they have been doing uh, solidarity trips to Wet'suwet'en territory, especially over this past summer, but before that too. And so anyway, they were some of the organizers, not the only ones, but some of the organizers of that event. So there are lots of good CPT people around. So anyway, but yes, there are Christians opposing it 100%. Yeah, there are Christians opposing it in productive and I guess also non-productive yes. ways too, is what I mean <laughs> yeah, to say. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you can't pray climate change away. It's not going to work. Uh, unless prayer is like something different <laughs> than <laughs> sure, what people sure. usually mean by that word. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. So we've said a lot of things about climate change so far. We've said a lot of things about colonialism and some big picture ideas about Christianity. But maybe we can just take a second and say like what paint, paint a picture of what is actually happening with the climate right now because I think without a really grounded grasp on what that is. I don't know. Maybe something that falls flat or something, yeah. or it doesn't seem as important as it is. Um, okay. So a few episodes ago, we did talk about the IPCC report about climate change and how bad it is. And I got to tell you, it's still bad. It hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> um, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of different, uh, different pieces of this, uh, but Vijay Prashad has been writing uh, quite a bit about uh, the IPCC report, but also about COP26 and kind of some things going on around, like different types of activism going on around COP26, um, kind of running concurrently to 
all of these global leaders meeting, there's also a bunch of leftist uh, organizations that showed up as well to have like a people's tribunal and kind of like see who to hold uh, accountable. It's all really neat, I think, actually. But um, that being said, let's paint a picture of like maybe what's happening in the world with regards to climate change and um, and we can kind of get to it, right? I mean, we talked about the uh, the colonialism aspect of it, but here's the actual climate change information. This is again from Vijay Prashad. He wrote this for the newsletter for Tricontinental. Vijay Prashad says, according to the report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, a great acronym, unless carbon emissions are reduced, it's unlikely that the key goal of having no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming compared to pre-industrial levels will be met. The IPCC suggests that the faster the world moves to net zero emissions, the better the chance of preventing catastrophic levels of warming. Uh, he goes on to say this, tragically, the COP26 process has been swept into the matrix of dangerous geopolitical tensions driven largely by the United States in its quest to prevent China's scientific and technological advancement. Coal is at the center of the debate with the argument being made that unless China and India cut back on their coal-fired power plants, no carbon reduction will be possible. Okay, so Vijay Prashad, he's laying it out here for us. Um, unless things change, the world's going to get hotter. That's it. That's like the the bare facts of it. And uh, the IPCC report, as we noted last time around, gives like these three possible futures, all of which are actually pretty bad. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the possible future, though, where there's only 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming is like the best possible solution. Um, but it's it's worth noting that even in the best possible solution, the world still gets hotter. And in the the worst the worst solutions, the world gets significantly hotter <laughs> in the last one. It's like uninhabitable. Um, so there's there's all this going on. But uh, yeah, th this this added note again about COP26 and China and India is like a, a pretty important piece of the puzzle, right? All these people are coming together, and um, once you know it, it's China and India that are causing all these problems, and not the United States, <laughs> which is like you know the biggest producer of uh, emissions mm -hmm. on the planet. Yeah, I mean that piece is huge too, right? Because uh, this is maybe um, bringing in what we were just talking about in a helpful way, right? That. Uh, uh, the United States will, they always do this. If you talk to them about climate change, they will always point the finger at somebody else. And like I said, who are they not pointing it at? Other Christian countries, right? Other big consumer countries, for instance, they pointed instead at these countries like China and India. And there are so many complicated things about it. I mean, Vijay Prashad kind of contextualizes it in like a, an attempt to hold China back in particular, which sure, like that's true. But uh, there's a lot of other things going on too, right? India and China are historically uh, non-Western countries. Uh, India throwing off the, the British colonial system. Uh, China having a different kind of anti-colonial struggle, but nevertheless um, formed by that, that kind of non-Western anti-colonial yeah. resistance movement. Um, and the, the key is there are so many things left unsaid when the U.S. points the finger, right? For instance... Like China and India have way more human beings in them than the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, their per capita rate of pollution is not nearly the rate of uh, the U.S. and Europe. Um, it's true that they burn lots of coal, but uh, <laughs> Europe and the United States have burned a lot more coal <laughs> Tons proportionally. <of> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you could never probably do the industrial revolution over again and still have a planet at the end of it, right? right. So. Uh, China and India will never, ever, ever have the same like, like price tag of carbon as these Western countries. Uh, so that's huge. Um, yeah. And maybe the last piece too is like, uh, because of the way that global capitalism is set up. This is a great point made in uh, by Development and Peace. 
Um, this is where I learned it, at least. <laughs> so that's great. Because of the way that our economy works, uh, where are our sort of the things that we enjoy in consumer societies? Where are they usually made? Places like India, China, Indonesia, right? Places where people point fingers. So if you still want cheap consumer goods, um, guess who's going to have to pollute? so that you can do that it's mm. going to be these countries that people get upset about so yeah it's a good yeah. note to like to just to point out the interconnection of like international trade there yeah too, exactly right? like yeah. it's not like uh <laughs> i mean i don't want to let anyone off the hook right like there's no point in that but at the same yeah. time like uh it's it's global capitalism that causes yeah. people like china or india to have to you know right. produce the way they do or to have emissions like they do so right it's not like uh, it's it's not like they are solely responsible, and it's also not like they aren't responsible right. at all. Right? Right. It's kind of, of both. But yeah, of it's a, a complex situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and maybe just add one last piece, and then we can complain about the U.S. some more in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we mentioned this Christian afterworld thing. I think that might be a hard thing to get your brain around. So it's good to sort of put it in these practical terms. So when we talk about the Christian afterworld, we're talking about a world that we exist in today. That was, as Matt said earlier, historically emerging out of the way Christians decided to put the world together. So the United States, it doesn't have a state religion, but it's still a pretty Christian country, right? It's we've only ever had Christian presidents. Uh, Christianity is all over the place. Uh, well, now we have a Catholic president. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Europe is the same way, right? It's more maybe ostensibly secular, quote unquote. Um, but it still has this extremely important and powerful Christian logic underneath it that continues to shape the way that those countries interact in the world. And uh, because of Christianity and colonialism's integral tie, the wealth of these countries, the power of these countries, is the result of a Christian supremacism that has never been, you know, yeah. dialed back, right? Totally. <laughs> I mean, it is a hard idea to get your brain around, right? That, like, um, you know, how is it that like Jesus is somehow responsible for all these bad yeah. things? And like, well, you know, it's not Jesus's fault, obviously. <laughs> it can't, it actually theologically can't be. But, <laughs> but like the 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 thing to draw out here is that like, well, how did how did um, colonial powers decide they're going to divide up the quote unquote new world, right? right? And it's like the Treaty of Tordesillas, and it's just like the Pope drawing a line in the map, right? right? And you know, maybe that's not the Christianity that you practice, but at the same time, you're an inheritor of that. Um, <laughs> you're an inheritor of that that thing and, and that power behind like the Pope drawing a line on the map is exactly why the United States is extremely powerful yeah. and extremely rich. And the same reason why Europe is extremely powerful and extremely rich. So it's like, you know, it's, it's maybe not the religion that you practice directly responsible for these things, but it's like the institutions of Christianity. It's the ideology of Christianity that says that these things are possible. So, I mean, you just have to kind of recognize that like Christianity is um, a lot of things at once. And one of those things at least is like the, um, uh, the motivator of colonial violence and right. uh, ecocide, basically. Right. And then again, that pointing at China and India is a pointing at non-Christian, historically non-Christian countries, right? So the U.S. isn't going to point at Europeans for having too many, I don't know, like a bad consumer habit. It's mm -hmm. not going to point at the United States for driving bad consumer habits that contribute to climate change, right? Uh, nobody's going to point at those. Instead, you point at these other countries, which uh, maybe to borrow again from Walter Bignolo, um, he points out India and, and China are sort of uh, de-Westernizing countries, right? They they pose a challenge to the achievement of a Western Christian world, a world dominated by Western Christians, and Western Christians, surprise, don't want that to happen, right? So <laughs> any any chance we get to uh, point at other people, we'll, we'll take it to try to sort of undercut that rise or or our own decline, however you want to see it. Yeah, okay. So maybe to, to hammer this point home just a little bit more, here's another fact from Vijay Prashad, who is kind of laying this all out. 
Um, this will not conclude our complaining about the United States, <laughs> but it will definitely bolster it maybe a little bit more. It'll, it'll make it uh, more clear. Okay. So Vijay Prashad is writing here about sort of like the, you know, where to place the blame or how to maybe contextualize the blame for, you know, climate emissions and stuff like that. Carbon emissions, climate emissions, not a thing. <laughs> Carbon emissions. I'd no love one... to emit more climate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. We're just farting it out here. Okay, so Vijay Prashad says the United States' own proposal to reduce current emissions by 50 to 52% from their t- 2005 levels. Um, the country's level of per capita CO2 emissions would still make up for 220% of the global average in 2030. If the U.S. were to reach its goal, the country's per capita carbon emissions in 2030 would be 42% higher than China's are today. So I think this is an important statistic. It's kind of, I mean, a lot to wrap your mind around in terms of statistics. I don't know, just imagining a graph in my brain. But still, like, even if the United States did the thing that they said they were going to do at COP26, it would still be more, it would still be higher than China's emissions today, right? So it's like, um, who are you pointing the finger at, my guy? <laughs> Come on, yeah. Joe Biden. Joe yeah. Biden, the car guy, stop. <laughs> Joe Biden, the car guy, exactly. Uh, and we could say, too, you know, I don't know, people probably made this connection already, but in case you didn't, I guess there are a lot of ironies around Joe Biden in particular making these kinds of uh, agreements at COP26. Yeah. You know, just before going, right before going to Glasgow, he met with Pope Francis, right? And Pope Francis also had a message for COP26 and has had lots of other messages about climate change and so on. And there's so much to do about Biden being a Catholic president, and I have no doubt that he likes to go to mass and so on. But uh, one thing that we can say is apparently these kinds of meetings, right? When Joe Biden meets Pope Francis, those meetings don't really leave much of a political impression. Mm. Uh, Pope Francis, for instance, uh, explicitly in Fratelli Tutti, the encyclical he did last year, tells us, for instance, that we should stop believing the lie of neoliberalism, as he calls it, uh, that we can solve every problem with a market-based solution. And what did Joe Biden say at COP26? <laughs> that we need to make sure that we find a good market-based solution to climate change, right? So uh, it's just maybe one more way to sort of point out there are contradictions even in in Christians dealing with this problem. And uh, anyway, the car guys, the car guys are not going to save us. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, even to, I mean, okay, being, being good Leninists, let's just ratchet up the contradictions <laughs> even more. I mean, like, okay, so Joe Biden, he met with the the Pope, and then he went to COP26, but even before those two things, he decided that he was going to auction off, like, drilling rights for right. the Gulf of Mexico, right? right? So it's not like he's, he's not, he's not turning down, <laughs> on, yeah. the, on the big dial in his yeah, office yeah. that says carbon emissions, he's not turning it down. <laughs> he keeps turning it up, and he should stop, um, <laughs> is the thing. Yeah, I mean, so it's important, right? We're drawing out these connections that uh, the United States, they want to point their finger at China, they want to point at India, and, like... Listen, those people should also stop yeah, <laughs> doing carbon emissions. Everyone should. There should be more action, I think, across the board. But um, at the same time, it's not like the United States' is, uh, hands are clean on the topic. It's far yeah. from the fact. And and, and it's hard to see COP26 as anything but very performative. Yeah. And, you know, okay, um, on the subway ride back from the Shoe Museum, <laughs> Dean and I were talking about Greta Thunberg and kind of her place within the conversation about the climate. And there's lots of criticisms of her. And I think that's fair enough. Whatever. Whatever. Say say what you will about Greta Thunberg. But uh, about COP26, uh, she did say something that I thought was really great. She did tweet out the words, blah, 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 blah. And, <laughs> and like, I agree. I think that she's right. I mean, even um, uh, we'll kind of talk about this more in a minute. But like the result of COP26 was uh, not that people said they were going to become carbon neutral or that they were going to step away from fa- fossil fuels. It's that they're going to start like easing away from coal. They're going right. to start easing away from fossil fuels. 
And like uh, Greta Thunberg is right, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> a slow, gradual step away from carbon yeah. emissions is still losing. It's still like it's still the climate raising like two degrees more. Yeah, I think it's important to to uh, dial in to these opportunities like COP26, where opportunity is a weird way to put it. But I guess uh, uh, opportunities to decide how mad you want to get about climate change, right? Like this is ostensibly the moment where uh, our leaders, our elected leaders from around the world, the people that we think are leading us somewhere, get together and say what they're going to do, right? Where they're going to lead us. And where they are going to lead us is literally to hell, right? <laughs> literally to a place where, like, the world is on fire. I mean, it is not a place that we should want to be. And uh, I think that Christians have a hard time being angry, Uh it's just not a good, I don't know. <laughs> it's weird to put it that way. Christians are angry about weird things, <laughs> but like good Christians, let me put it that way. Good Christians who, uh, who care about, you know, who want to be like good, responsible, progressive type people or whatever. It can be difficult to cultivate a, a healthy kind of anger. And I think it's important to sort of channel that at a moment like this to be like, I am upset that my Catholic president or my Catholic prime minister, whether it's Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau, uh, are just refusing to take it seriously, right? And that's what it is at the end of the day. It, it is a refusal to take seriously what it would mean to uh, deal with the climate crisis, which is also an economic crisis. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is definitely like a, a, a Jesus flipping over tables kind of moment, if yeah. anything, right? Like, yeah. how mad are you going to be? You should be very mad, I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, this whole time as, uh, at the beginning of COP26, I started reading Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future, which is a book about climate change, um, and, uh, the problem of inaction about it. I mean, it's a, it's a fiction book set in the future, but it's like, it's not very fiction in the sense that it's, it's exactly what's going to happen probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, a theme of the book is that nobody wants to do, I mean, people in power aren't willing to do things that are hard, like move away from fossil fuels because like, um, I mean, they rely on them, right? Like, uh, that's the way that they have power in the world. And that's also the way that they have massive amounts of capital in the world. So like, there's a lot of governmental inaction. And on the other hand, there's all kinds of people who are very concerned about that. Like, and, you know, they want their governments to do something and there's really no outlet for them to do it. So they turn to awful things like terrorism, but you know, like whatever <laughs> in those situations, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, part of the book is even kind of like unpacking the idea of like, was t- like, what does terrorism mean in the sense of like, uh, you know, when one side is like blowing up like a nuclear, like not a nuclear power plant, like one side is blowing up a coal plant and then the other side is like going to kill the entire earth. Like which one's, <laughs> which one's really terrorism, I guess, <laughs> is a, is a question the book that it, the book makes you ask. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but it's a, uh, the book has, has been helping me think through maybe like how mad I should be or like um, just how frustrating inaction is or, or what that might look like in the long term. And I think that, uh, I don't know. It's the question that we should start asking, though, I think, right? Like, what does it mean to live in a world, you know, where there are no more beaches or something? Because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. basically what the future will be if, if inaction is the norm. Um, well, to help us think about that and also to think about this Christian afterlife thing a bit more, um, you know, we thought maybe we could take a quick look at some, at least one Christian who is thinking about it better than most people. And that's Leonardo Boff. Um, Leonardo Boff, a great liberation theologian. You know about him if you listen to this podcast. We talk about him pretty regularly and his great blog. <laughs> he's the only one out there still blogging, but he's doing it. Brian Meadows got a blog, but he's not as regular. He needs to, he needs to become very, very regular blogger. <laughs> um, yeah, Leonardo Boff. Uh, right. I don't know. What should we say about him? Is, he, is there a good introduction that you have? Sure. He's great. He was a Franciscan priest. 
Uh, he lived among the poorest people in Brazil. He wrote a bunch of books. He got in trouble with the Vatican and then got out of trouble with it. Uh, <laughs> Pope Francis seems to like him. Um, that, that's very important. He's no longer a priest, uh, but uh, still very much involved in theologizing and working with the poor in Brazil. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's one of the most significant liberation theology authors from Latin America at all. I guess that's the way to put it. Yeah, um, especially when it comes to like ecology, I think. Yeah, sure. that's right. It, he was like doing eco-theology before it was cool alongside other people. Like it, it, you should always mention like Yvonne Gabara, for example, an important eco-feminist in Brazil. And, and they think together about, you know, whatever. There's lots of other people going on. But Boff is the blogging one and therefore it's easier to pay attention to him. That's right. Boff <laughs> is the blogging one. He's a, he's a slippery guy who gets out of trouble with the church. And that's cool. <laughs> Um, you can go read his, his blog even if you wanted to. You have to translate it from Portuguese, which is fine if you have Google Translate. No big deal. Anyways, so Leonard Boff, he was all, he's also been writing about COP26 and kind of some of the themes around it. And I think it's pretty helpful. Um, so let me just read them to you on this podcast. Uh, Boff says this. The data from the scientists sent to COP26 to make the right decisions gives one answer. Climate change is caused by the type of social and economic development brought about by the nature of capitalist society, which turns out not to be proven sustainable. The problem is not the climate, but capitalism, which knows neither an environmental nor sociopolitical ecology. So I think what Bob is saying here is exactly right. It's exactly what we would say, I think, as well. <laughs> he just said it better on his blog, so that's fair enough. Um, but he's right. I mean, the problem isn't the climate. The problem is all the things that we're doing to the climate. It's the whole logic of capitalism that says accumulation before people that says, yes, keep burning fossil fuels because we can make a lot of money off of it. Who cares if people die? Um, no big deal. So there, this is, this is Leonardo Boff, a, a real Christian person who is thinking about this critically in more, in, in more ways than just saying like, uh, creation care is really important yeah. and we should be good stewards of the earth, right? There's something more radical in, uh, Boff's, uh, you know, analysis, so um, he goes on to say this as well. Given the urgency of the ecological emergency, the results of COP26 were inadequate and frustrating. The only recommendations were to gradually reduce gases and the use of coal by 2030. He ends his blog saying, human life may eventually disappear and the earth will keep spinning around the sun, but without us. This can be avoided if there's a global human alliance for the benefit of all life and its diversity. We have the means, science and technology, some only lack the political will and the emotional bond with nature and the great and generous Mother Earth. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Boff is right. The Earth will exist long after we all die. And we shouldn't let that happen, though. It's, like, kind of it, right? Um, it, it's, such a, it's such a frustrating thing. Um, the reports tell us that unless we take action soon, things will get very bad for a lot of people. Um, while I'm sure millionaires and billionaires buy, you know, great fortresses on some island somewhere that they can continue living a, a life of relative luxury. But uh, the rest of us will kind of just like suffer and die and it'll be awful in all kinds of different and interesting ways that maybe hasn't been awful before. Uh, but uh, we have the means to actually take care of these situations. We just have to think around capitalism. But um you know, it's like such a frustrating situation because like the answer is to stop being capitalist. <laughs> the answer is clearly just like eco-socialism. Um, yet the people who uh, who get to make decisions, who, who try to like uh, solve these problems are all capitalists. So they cannot see it. Right. So mm -hmm. it's just like an impossible. It, it's an impasse. The people who are in charge, the people who are at COP26, they, they clearly can't think this way. It's beyond their capacity. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest irony here is maybe, uh, as we always say in this podcast, say what you will about China, and there's a lot to say about China. So much to say. Not a perfect country, not maybe the country of your worst nightmares either. You know, whatever. It's a country like lots of other countries on the planet. Uh, but it does have a different political imagination at work. Again, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But I do think, like, it's important to recognize, too, that there are other political traditions thinking about things like ecology and... China, for instance, is one of those countries thinking in a different way about what it will do about green technologies. You know, China has made a lot of promises outside of COP26, which I think is actually very important, right? Like promises not contingent on meeting with a bunch of other world leaders. Uh, It has made promises uh, about not just reducing its own emissions, but transforming the way that it uses energy and so on with an understanding that it will need to burn oil and coal to get there, right? That it, it uh, this is a necessary piece of development. And granted, not all promises are kept, but nevertheless, um, you know, uh, if they do keep them, it will be an ecological solution, not premised on log- or on the logic of profit, but on the primacy of human beings, right? The primacy of people and the assumption that you could get to a socialist world that uh, respects the earth and, and so on. So... Again, I'm not holding China up as like the leader of <laughs> our totally. ecological future, but like it's just to say, you know, uh, Boff is right. The problem is capitalism. And if you don't even have a political leader that can at least say capitalism is not the the end, even if it might be complicated during the means or something, then like I don't I genuinely do not know how you could ever come up with a, a, a realizable ecological solution. Yeah, totally. Or I mean, if China is too scary for you, which I don't know why it would be, but like, I don't know, Kara in India is a, is another yeah, yeah. example, right? It's like, it's a place that's deferred to a socialist model. It's a place that's chosen, I mean, a type of direct democracy over everything else. And it's like, it's not gonna, it, again, another alternative political imagination, I guess, to say the least. But I mean, like, you can't, it's such a bizarre thing to think that, like, there is a market solution through this, or that there is a capitalist way through this, because, like, I don't know, man, countries actually hinge on being able to sell gas and oil. So, yeah. like, how do you expect them to do that? I mean, how would you incentivize someone through the market to not sell the thing that makes them a lot of money? Yeah. It makes no sense right. <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, okay, here, this is this is an example. I mean, in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, a science fiction book, they come <laughs> up with uh, uh, they come up with a currency that does incentivize this, but uh, it's a science fiction book. So that's how you know it's not going to really work out. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the blockchain is not going to get you through this. There's no way around it other than um, abandoning capitalism, right? Yeah. I mean, finding ways to to convince countries to actually keep oil and gas in the ground and uh, uh, not just don't get it out. Just leave right. it in there, man. Right. <laughs> leave well, those dinosaur bones alone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I mean, this is the other piece, too, that, like, uh, well, first of all, maybe there's two things. The first is it's important to understand political economy and ecology, right? Uh, why is capitalism unable to offer a solution it's not just because like edgy teens or like cool theologians like Bach don't like the word. <laughs> it's because like there are logics at work in capitalism that make these things contradictory, right? So for instance, like capitalism is a system of literally infinite economic growth that does not make sense. It, it is an imaginary way of being. There is more money in the world, more wealth in the world today than there has ever been in history, which is weird. <laughs> like, how is that possible, right? The world didn't get any bigger, but wealth got bigger, right? Uh, so it's this kind of bizarre uh, numerical system premised on capitalists competing with each other, uh, betting on the future in order to basically edge each other out, right? 
the planet doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in such a way where it wins and loses bets. Like it uh, has a different sort of internal logic based on biological rhythms and chains of, you know, reactions and like adaptations or maladaptations or the inability to adapt and so on. And at the end of the day, you have an, an infinite growth economic system interacting with a very finite uh, reserved mm -hmm. <laughs> ecological system, right? And if that system isn't allowed to renew itself or kind of metabolize itself, it, it will not grow. And as Boff says, like, in the end, the Earth will be fine. It will spin around the sun without human beings or other forms of life. Probably a lot of other forms of life. Yeah, and like... It, I don't know, the planet probably won't shed a tear about it, I guess. But, like, we won't be here. So, <laughs> you know, I would prefer a world where actually the Earth has to continue sort of uh, factoring us in <laughs> to the uh, the metabolization processes or something. And uh, right now, that is not the path that we're on. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's it. And, okay, so, so that's it. <laughs> that's all there really is to it, right? Is uh you can't have a you can't have a system that functions on um infinite growth in a very finite world, um and when you try there is this kind of contraction of uh of results and accidents and all kinds of awful things that happen in in the meantime right like um I mean like sea levels rising glacial melt um, the acidification of the ocean um like massive heat waves and like the inability to keep up uh you know energy production in those heat waves. All kinds of really awful things will happen, you know, and, and that's it. Um, but there are ways of thinking around this, and they are not the ways that Christians have historically thought about them. Um, Dean, I don't know what it's like in the Catholic Church. I'm sure that there are some very nice liberal ways of thinking about <laughs> about the environment. But in Protestantism, the, the phrase that always comes up is creation care. Right. Like, you're supposed to be a good steward of the world. And in fact, all of those people who've read Genesis about uh, people having dominion over the world, they've read it just a little bit wrong. The word shouldn't be dominion. It should be stewardship. And we should right, be taking right. care of things and, like, whatever. And, like, um, it's such a nice idea. It sounds great. Um, it's a great thing to uh, it's a great thing to learn about in your Christian liberal arts education. But, like, uh, I think at this point in the uh, <laughs> in this point in the scene, it's, like, not good enough. Mm -hmm. um and it, it doesn't help you right you can't even how would you even like take care of a world well um what would it mean you know to just be a good steward of the earth when um you know the the forces that want to completely destroy the world and people for profit um have all the money and have all the power it just doesn't make any sense right there's no like there's no ngo that could take care of that problem there's no um I don't know, there's no, like, protest or action that could even take care of that problem. There has to be something different, and has to be a complete systemic change. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to uh, keep pressing that, right? That uh, there really is no way out other than the destruction of uh, capitalism, and that's not really what people talk about when they talk about climate care. I mean, if you were going to use that kind of uh, language... You'd it's have a to, great pitch. It's a great pitch. You'd have to talk about, like, creation defense or something. Yeah, I don't know, like... Yeah. Uh, it's important to recognize that you can't care for creation, even if that's the language you want to use in a capitalist society, right? I don't know. I, I'm a big believer in like, people can use whatever language they want. Some people really like stewardship language for reasons that I'm sure I could sort of sympathize with. It doesn't do it for me. And it's fine. Like, whatever. People can go to the mat for that if that's a thing. But to me, it's always like, but how does it sort of cash out? What's the functionality of it? Cash out, I guess, is a weird analogy to use. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the function of that kind of rhetoric, right? And if, uh, if stewardship or creation care or however you want to put it 
doesn't end in a call for the destruction of an economic system that renders it impossible to really steward or care for or defend creation, then, you know, it's not creation care or not in any meaningful sense. It's it's something else, right? It's a, a way of talking together, a way of writing theological books or making good sermons, but it's not a way of, uh, I don't know, being in communion with the planet. Right. It's not a way of being in communion with the planet. It's not a way of claiming the common good. It's not a way of like respecting future people. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of, it's just, it's real lukewarm kind of stuff. God will spit you out of his mouth. <laughs> that's what I'm here to say. <laughs> okay. Well, we've got what? I don't know. 20 minutes left. Let's maybe uh, circle this back to the stuff going on at this protest yesterday. Yeah, Maybe totally. some more of that Christian Afterworld stuff, right? So, okay. When uh, Wet'suwet'en land defenders are defending their land from coastal gas link, right? I would never say, for instance, that that's like creation care or stewardship <laughs> or whatever it might be. Sure. Um, it just wouldn't make sense to put it that way. Uh -huh. But as a Christian person in the world trying to think about my relationship to ecology... Uh, whatever I decide to call that, uh, whatever language it is, it ha necessarily has to mean something like uh, standing in solidarity with those people on the front lines who are literally willing to be brutalized by federal police to make sure that a waterway doesn't get poisoned, mm -hmm. right? That's what's at stake. And I think if we're going to have a Christian way of addressing things like climate change, uh, we also need to think really carefully about what that means for what actions of solidarity we have to build now, right? And I mean, you you said earlier, Matt, like what's in the Catholic tradition necessarily might be different than in Protestant traditions. We're not very good either <laughs> thinking about ecology. I think Bummer. Francis is trying. Yeah. Uh, La Odyssey has some great stuff in it. Um, but, you know, the, the real sort of thing to keep pushing is there is a minoritarian strand that says we have to sort of place indigenous people at the center of how we think about ecology. And that is even endorsed by Pope Francis in his own complicated way. It is not perfect. It Pope Francis, too, needs to be decolonized and so on. Uh, but he himself says indigenous people are the people who care for the land best, right? And the paradox that's there is, like, if you really want to take that seriously as a Christian, you have to recognize that you're also inviting uh, a really complicated relationship with your own Christianity into yeah. that conversation, right? Uh, understanding, well, why aren't settler Christians in solidarity with indigenous people? <laughs> many of whom are Christian themselves, not all of them, of course, right? Why is there some kind of rift that's happening there? Uh, you might ask, uh, why do you even have to sort of, um, I don't know, like wait around for indigenous people to do something that puts great risk to themselves before we start thinking carefully about all that kind of stuff, right? Lots of critical questions that come up as Christians. And I think it's important that Christians especially start... Uh, processing that piece too it's easy to i think it's really easy actually to say the capitalism bit like you can get a lot of christians on totally. board with being like yeah we got to figure out a different economic system and so on yes 100 percent. but once we start asking those harder questions of like but what is it in the dna of christianity as it has historically expressed itself that creates these kinds of uh divides that puts us in colonial relationships extractive relationships with the land and other people that is like a very difficult soul searching that i don't know we haven't really scratched the surface of um, but it's fine. Yeah, I think that's right. But it makes a lot of sense, right? A, di a different, a different group of people has to be centered in that solution. And it, I mean, it, it makes sense. But it's a, it's a hard thing though because it does challenge. I mean, it changes, it challenges the uh, the sensibility. I think within at least some types of Christianity, at least in my very particular type of evangelical Christianity, it's just like there's a problem, let's solve it, and like let's do it. But like you know, um, but taking it all on yourself or making you like the central player as mm -hmm. the savior of a bunch of people, yeah, yeah, is like. 
the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's uh, that's important. I mean, um, being in solidarity then with indigenous people as they struggle for these things on the front lines, like like you said, putting their bodies like at risk um, of of real and of real violence is uh, is important. But like maybe that that's like one way to start stepping back or like one line of flight away from that uh, that settler mindset, right? To I don't know to let somebody else kind of like be the leader of that and like being a good ally or being a good collaborator or yeah. co-conspirator or whatever we want to say. And to be a leader also in a way that doesn't render us maybe passive or off the hook. Right. I think that's also something yeah. that can happen, right? Like uh, it's like, Oh, you, you center whatever oppressed person is in the conversation or something. And then you kind of sit back as the, like the virtuous listener, not wanting to take up any space. I think that is also a dangerous sort of place mm-hmm. to end up. Right. Like, uh, and it's easy to be there too, because there's lots of anxieties that happen, especially when you feel guilty and all that. But like, it's important too to be like when you do sort of follow the weed of indigenous peoples. It doesn't usually mean like sit around and wait. It's <laughs> like, uh, okay, yeah, we're in the middle of this, and like, can you also be in the middle of it some way? Yeah. Can you like find a way to do this right? Or I mean, I mentioned Christian peacemaker teams earlier. Like, it's such an important model, um, and there's others too. Like the Mennonites in Canada have been doing this, and other Christians as well. Like the Wasudan people put out an open call of solidarity, right? And these are Christians who answered that call saying, can we come visit? Can we see what this camp is like? Can we see what Coastal Gaslink is doing on the land, right? And they did that. And they're writing stuff about it. They're organizing rallies. They're trying to get other Christians to care about it. They're trying to uh, put their own bodies in the way, right? And not just rely on indigenous people to kind of be the people carrying the burden of like saving the planet, right? Like, uh, it's important to think through the messiness of building that solidarity, um, but recognizing all the while that, like, as Christians in particular, we're kind of coming to that struggle, uh, carrying a lot of baggage and, like, I don't know, being willing to sort of work that stuff out on our own time is very important. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, a good note that you can't wait around for, like, you know, we can't we can't be passive, I guess, in yeah. that solidarity. You can't wait around for something to happen. Like, when's when's it going to pop off? Because it's like already happening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like, where are you? Yeah. I mean, in the United States, it's difficult, I think, because there's like sort of geographic difference and like a definite, a definitely like um, different uh, and probably worse way of thinking about indigenous people and indigenous solidarity. But like, it's still happening. Like, there's still well, and, like Standing Rock was a great yeah one. yeah exactly yeah or, totally uh, well. Uh, I just started reading this great book called uh, The Red Deal, which mm. is the play on the Green New Deal and so on. And, um, you know, there was a manifesto circulated and then it kind of got expanded into like a book project, small book. And it's great because it's about indigenous um, kind of, I don't know how to put it best. Like the collective is not just indigenous peoples, but it's about sort of thinking about our political and economic and ecological challenges from the perspective of indigenous solidarity, right? And it's really great to read as a person in both the U.S. or Canada because it intentionally sort of renders that border, (laughs) you know, uh, obsolete or complicated, I guess. Obsolete's a bad word, but um, it understands that the solidarity extends beyond the the settler borders, right? Yeah. Um, It opens with a scene from the Wet'suwet'en struggle, right? And uh, it includes stuff about Standing Rock and Bolivia and the plurinational stuff going on there, right? All that to say. Um, I'm reading that text and it's uh, a really good example of like, I don't know, understanding that um, you can find your way into the struggle regardless of where you are, uh, even though it's going to take a lot of work to figure out the specificity of where you are. Yeah, totally. I think that's right. 
So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the struggle is happening. It's just like, are, can you pay attention to where it is or can you find where it is or can you find a way to be in solidarity with those people, you know, wherever you are or something is is the question that kind of comes up, not uh, when's it going to happen. Yeah, and it's weird to, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the tone I'm striking in this is like the tone of a person giving advice, which I don't like because uh, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable doing that. But I think, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's more like these are all things that I, when I say that you should do, I'm sort of speaking maybe in like, <laughs> re- like maybe I should reflexively. It it's yeah. like I'm saying that uh, unto myself, right? Of being yeah. like, it's important to think through like how I'm implicated in uh, colonial violence as a, a Roman Catholic person living in Toronto, trying to go to solidarity protests, trying yeah. to listen to speakers and sort of, you know, figure out what that means, right? And, uh, yeah, just being willing to struggle through all that stuff and mess it up and, I don't know, keep on figuring it out, I think is uh, really difficult in my own experience, but important to to get on the path. Yeah, that's true. Well, all that to say, we went to a rally and we got really, <laughs> really excited about it, which I guess if uh, maybe if everyone went to a rally and then they made a podcast about it, well, I was going to say the world would be better, but it's not. No. There would just be more podcasts, I guess, and that's cool, too. It's like the... Oh, man, it's like a, a really uh, unfortunate version of like COP26 in, in, in small form, right? The blah, blah, blah problem yeah. and all the rest of it. But <laughs> Here yeah. we are. We're blah, blah, blahing ourselves. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, it, maybe if nothing else, it's a call to pay attention to those types of struggles. Uh, and not just for you, but also for us, because I don't know, we, we should probably take our own advice better. Um, but uh, all that being said, capitalism is bad. Pay attention to those struggles. <laughs> That's it, man. That's it. That's the only way you can sum it up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well... There you go. I don't know. This is what it's like when we get in the same room, a lot of rambling and uh, trying to figure out what we're doing that day and talking about. But uh, we went to one rally. We went to an art museum. We went to a shoe museum. And here we are still trying to put it together. (laughs) We'll get there. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, I don't know. You can find us on social media, etc., etc. Blah blah blah. Um, our music is by Amory Armstrong. Our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth, and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would else, 